Chapter 16 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Kelly Taylor. No ordeal could be severer than the one through which we passed on that first night in London. Amongst the audience, there were not a dozen persons whose hand had ever been clasped ours in friendly greeting. Even the few to whom we were personally known had been strangers of a week before. Amongst the members of the press and the habitués of the theatre, who play the critic with a fault-finding passion for a man must serve his time to every trade, save censure, critics all are ready-made we had not a single acquaintance. Consequently, we were not prepared for the flattering estimate of our abilities which appeared in the public journals on the morning after our debut. The hunchback was repeated for our second appearance. On this occasion, the performance was not marred by the demoniacal possession of the spirit of stage fright benedict and beatrice were our next impersonations i quote one of the notices which met our well-pleased eyes on the next ensuing morning the great test of a true dramatic artist is shakespeare many an actor or actress who has acquired a, the fair name of fame in the ordinary run of characters fails in the attempt to embody the creations of shakespeare whereas on the contrary an artiste who can act shakespeare can act anything else with ease and success mrs mawett was last night tried by the shakespearean test and was not found wanting she is an artiste there is no mistake about it she has the ring of the genuine metal she can act shakespeare the play was much ado about nothing and Mrs. Mawat sustained the part of Beatrice. She looked charmingly, and thoroughly entered the spirit of her part. Nothing could exceed the playful espliglerie with which she bantered Benedict, and the thorough gusto with which she gave the repartee. Her ringing, tinkling laugh, too, was fascinating, exceedingly. It was the laugh of genuine enjoyment in the more serious scenes too although perhaps she exhibited here and there a tendency to overacting which appears to be the great fault of the american school of tragedy she was very fine one touch of feeling makes the whole world kin and who that witnessed her indignant denunciation of the wrongers of hero did not feel the truth of the line the forte of Mrs. Mowat is evidently high comedy. Her Beatrice is the proof of it. Her success was complete. She was well supported by Mr. Davenport, whose Benedict, albeit perhaps scarcely sufficiently rollicking in the earlier scenes, was a well-studied, gentlemanly line of acting. But while all the London papers bestowed elaborate criticism, the oracular daily times which leads the editorial van preserved an ominous silence its columns wholly ignored our too republican existence i do not mean to convey the impression that the press with this exception were unanimous 
in their commendations. The Morning Post could barely tolerate the American debutantes. Its praises were of a killing faintness, its censures bombastically loud. The Athenium, at the onset of our career, had an odd but caressing mode of chiding, wrapping all its bitters up in sugar plums. I was pronounced pleasant but wrong, designated as a rose without a thorn, a bee without a sting, and charged with honeydew insipidity. I presume, in time, the wished-for thorns sprouted from the rose stem. The unobtruded sting gave some evidence of existence, for, before I left London, the Athenian became one of our warmest advocates. The examiner, usually an austere critic, bestowed upon us some high economums until the production of fashion. Then, upon my offending head, it poured innumerable vials of wrath. The American nation, it indignantly declared, had crowned their countrywoman with honor for a production which would have subjected Mrs. Trollope to the penalty of tar and feathers. Our engagement of six weeks came to a close. On the morning after my benefit, our last night, the portentous silence of the Daily Times was unexpectedly broken. It suddenly discovered that two American performers were actually fulfilling a successful engagement at the Princess's Theatre, and condescendingly honored them with a laudatory notice. Henceforth, our performances were regularly chronicled in its columns. The mysterious waking up for a time remained as incomprehensible to us as the long slumber. At a dinner party given by Mr. McCready, we became acquainted with Mr. Oxenford, the theatrical critic of this influential journal. A species of half-friendship sprang up out of the introduction and lasted for several years. Mr. Oxenford said to me one day, would you like to know how the Daily Times chanced to notice you after giving you the go-by through your first engagement? I replied that there had been a few subjects upon which my curiosity had been so much excited. Consequently, the information would be particularly interesting. You are indebted to a friend, he answered. To what friend? To the Earl of Carlisle. Mr. Oxenford then told me that he had always lacked faith in America's ability to produce theatrical genius of high order, making Miss Cushman an exemption to the sweeping skepticism. When he heard of the new American artist in England, he thought it too great a bore to go see them. A note from the Earl of Carlisle induced him to visit the theater on my benefit night. The contents of this note he did not repeat, but I presume it requested for us an impartial criticism. Henry Clay's letter to the Earl of Carlisle, with one of my own, were, I believe, enclosed in the Earl's missive to the editor of the Times. It was, then, to our own beloved and distinguished countryman, not wholly a foreign nobleman, that we owed our indebtedness for this important service. Our engagement at the Princess's was to be followed by the appearance of Mr. McCready. A proposition was made to us by Mr. Henry Wallach 
stage manager, that we should consent to a re-engagement and act in conjunction with Mr. McCready in the plays which he produced. This arrangement would have afforded me invaluable opportunities of improvement in my vocation. But my personations had been confined to the Juliets, Rosalinds, and Desdemonas. Mr. McCready required the support of a Lady Macbeth, Queen Constance, and Queen Catherine. These were embodiments which I had not the temerity to attempt, at least not until I had devoted to them study of months, or rather years. I was obliged reluctantly to forego the proposed distinction. Mrs. Kimball fulfilled the place for which I confessedly had not indispensable qualifications. Our personal acquaintance with Mr. McCready was the source of mingled gratification and advantage. A dinner was given at his house for the express purpose of making us acquainted with persons of literary, editorial, and social influence. Nor was this the only means by which he generously endeavored to promote our professional interest. Our second engagement in London took place at the Olympic Theatre Royal. Mr. Davidson was the nominal manager. The name of the actual lessee and manager, a gentleman of family and high literary standing, was withheld from the public. Mr. Brooke had just made his triumphant London debut at this theatre. During his temporary absence in the provinces, we appeared in the Lady of Lyons. The manager of the Olympic, not finding the author's demand so exorbitant as it was deemed by the manager of the princesses, but the former was a dramatist himself. The play was repeated six successive nights. Shortly after Mr. Brooks' return, we re-engaged and appeared in the same plays, Mr. Davenport and Mr. Brooke sustaining characters of equal importance. This combination took place for the first representation of a tragedy in five acts by Mr. Henry Spicer, Esquire, author of Judge Jeffreys, Honesty, etc., entitled The Lords of Ellingham. The production of that play formed the principal feature of our engagement. Mr. Davenport's portrayal of the confiding, noble-minded Dudley Latimer won much applause. Mr. Brooke rendered the audacious villainy of Launcery almost dangerously captivating. The death of Edith in the second act ends a highly wrought scene full of thrilling, effective situations. I forgot the wisdom of reserve's strength on the first night and made too lavish an expenditure. In attempting to reach my dressing room immediately after the death, I fell from exhaustion and, striking a sharp corner, cut a deep gash near the left temple. Fortunately, the flow of blood restored me to consciousness. The first sound I heard on recovering the callboy's summons of, Edith, you are called. In the closing scene of the play, Edith is brought in on a bier to strike horror to the heart of her remorseless persecutor. The beer could not be carried empty upon the stage, for, at a certain point, it is necessary that a veil should be lifted and Edith's face disclosed. 
the manager hearing of my accident was very anxious to procure a substitute but there was no time and the discovery of a change by the audience would have endangered the effectiveness of the last act and perhaps the success of the play my head was hastily bound up and i was laid upon the bier the ghastliness of countenance produced by the accident was particularly appropriate to the and to me solemn occasion but when dudley lifted the veil and beheld the bandaged head and the crimson drops that still trickled amongst edith's hair he uttered an involuntary exclamation of horror not set down in the book the departed spirit of edith must have returned at the sound for she whispered reassuringly through half-opened lips it's nothing i'm not much hurt the accident did not prevent my responding to the call of the audience when the play ended though with bandaged brows nor did it preclude my appearance in the same character on the ensuing night in spite of an unbecoming wound that could not be concealed by the most ingenious arrangement of curls but this accident is a trifle to those which occur every day in the profession there are instances of men's continuing a performance on the stage after they have had a finger or a thumb accidentally shot off the putting out of an eye or the breaking of a limb might possibly be considered disabling but minor calamities would be looked upon as too trivial to frustrate the enjoyment of a despotic audience our engagement at the olympic continued until the close of the theatre for the summer vacation the entourage of friendships will render any locality a home the most genial of social surroundings soon made us cease to feel like strangers in london hilliard in his exquisite book on italy remarks it is well to be chary of names it is an ungrateful return for hospitable attentions to print the conversation of your host etc etc the temptation to disregard this admonition is great in proportion to the wisdom of the rule from which it emanates i have endeavored in spite of some natural inclinations to the contrary to adhere to the precept except when the names of parties mentioned were in some way associated with my own history it is in this connection i may speak of mary and william howitt their names had been familiar words from my childhood what a moment of delight i thought it when i could exchange my imperfect imaginary portraits of these celebrities for charming realities we first met at a literary soiree i knew that mary howitt was present as my eyes glanced round the room in search of her they rested upon a lady whose almost quaker-like simplicity of garb blandly serene countenance and earnest manner in conversation made me exclaim internally that must be mary howitt a few moments afterwards when we were presented to each other i found i was not mistaken her personal acquaintance with members of the dramatic profession had awakened an interest in the stage but in what subject affecting human welfare does not mary howitt take a ready interest out of what unpretending ore would not the alchemy of her philanthropic mind strike a vein of gold 
Our accidental introduction ripened into an attachment, at least on my side. We were constantly thrown into communication, and Mary's Howitt's visits generally extended to some hours ushered in my white days. She proposed to add mine to the collection of memoirs that had already flowed from her graphic pen, and desired us to furnish her with materials. In compliance with this request, my early history was related, principally by Mr. Mollett. The memoir, which she used to pronounce a labor of love, was published in the People's Journal. William and Mary Howitt were at that time the editors. Our intercourse with Mary Howitt was greatly enhanced by the society of her gentle artist daughter, Anna Mary Howitt. She had not then contributed to the literary world her entertaining book entitled The Art Student in Munich. It might truly be said of this lovely girl, the disposition she inherits which render fair gifts fairer. She at once resembled and differed from her mother in character. Her philanthropy was as large but more discriminating. Her energies were more concentrated. Her perceptions of the beautiful and true, are they not identical, were even quicker. Her friendships were built upon rocks. Those of her mother had now and then a hasty foundation in sand. Who that has once known this youthful artist authoress can forget the peculiar fascination of her dove-like ways, the frank simplicity which impressed one with a sense of reserved power to be used at need, the modest sensitiveness that shrank from display, the apparent unconsciousness of her own rich gifts. She always reminded me of Wordsworth's description of that Lucy who dwelt alone beside the banks of Dove, although in one respect she differed. There were many to praise her and many to love. Another friendship, highly prized and warmly responded to, and leaned upon with a loving confidence and its lasting strength, was that of a friend of the Howitts, Camilla Crossland, nay, Camilla Tumlin, a celebrated as novelist, poetess, and editress. Mrs. Crossland addressed to me the following poem, one of the most valued of the effusions to which my name has been attached. My prospective return to America had formed the principal subject of our conversation. To Anna Cora Mollett. Blow, western wind, athwart the wave, blow, western wind still, and hold at bay the envious bark that seeks its sail to fill. Whene'er the threatened day arrives, we dream of it with pain, that calls the bird of passage home across the Atlantic main. A bird, a pearl, a lily flower, we love to liken thee, to something fresh from nature's hand, in mystic purity. And Protean should be types, I ween, of thee, O richly gifted, by triple rites and triple crowns above the herd uplifted. Thy perfect beauty, not the theme on which to fondly warm, for common clay has tamed ere now the Spartan Helen's form. And yet that beauty had a spell which unto all could reach when first I clasped thy hand and heard the music of thy speech. 
it stayed the words upon my tongue, my foot upon the floor. I could but gaze as I, methinks, had never gazed before. We were not strangers, oh, no, no, and cordial was thy glasp. And yet that all well nigh forbade my hand return the clasp. I knew thee by a knowledge deep, that of the printed page, but not as yet had I beheld thy triumphs of the stage. Thy Blanche was still a hearsay thing, thy Pauline but a dream, and Shakespeare's women dwelt apart, and not in life might seem. Far from conventional cold rules that tell of paint and glare, and all the playhouse tricks of trade and players studied care, Thy poet's soul can mold and bring the poet's thought to life, as when Italian Juliet loves and dies a hapless wife, or chase Virginia, tyrant doomed amid her household gods, most desolate yet undismayed by Roman lictors' rods, to goodness, greatness, love, and faith, thy heart responsive bends, thy woman's nature is the spell that with thy genius blends the spell that binds our heart to thee with chains more strong than steel and girds thee round with british love and friends both warm and leal who bids the western breeze to blow athwart the atlantic main and envy the broad land the right to lure thee back again Five years have added their daily strength to the bond of affection that links Camilla Crosland with all my most cherished English associations. Her name has ever a harp-like sound in my ears and brings back her own tones, a voice of holy sweetness turning common words to grace. There are high arguments in her life to disprove the supposed incompatibility of literary pursuits with home avocations, more emphatically womanly. These are manifested in the smiling patience with which she has encountered a sea of trials, whose tide but ebb to flow again, the simple dignity with which she receives the homage due to her talents, the gracious household ways that render beautiful her domestic existence. But I may not linger upon this theme, though it is one fraught with so many holy and touching memories. At the Theatre Royal, Marylebone, Mr. McReady played his London farewell previous to his departure for America. The engagement was one of the most brilliant on record. Mrs. Warner occupied the managerial chair at this theatre for several seasons. Her untiring exertions and Mr. McReady's advent drew a high class of audience to the Marylebone. The theatre is situated at the west end of London. Other stars of note succeeded Mr. McReady and Mrs. Warner, and the audience which they first attracted became permanent. An advantageous offer was made to us by the Marylebone management and accepted. We opened in As You Like It. Our engagement of twelve nights was followed by a re-engagement of twelve more and immediately after a third engagement. We became established favorites with the audience, and a proposition was made to us to become permanent stars of the establishment for the next five months, appearing every night. 
I ought to mention that the most eminent London stars eschew the comet-like course adopted in the United States. If their attraction is considered sufficiently strong, they engage for the season. Mr. and Mrs. Keene were, at this period, the fixed stars of the Haymarket Theatre. The 120-odd nights which were now to be occupied at the same locality demanded a supply of new parts. In two or three instances, the choice of play was left to the management. I, not possessing Mr. Davenport's remarkable versatility, which enabled him to embody with equal ease an Othello or a Yankee, a cardinal or a sailor, was consequently the sufferer. On one occasion, the manager selected a drama by Searle, entitled The Shadow Upon the Wall. The character of the heroine had been very successfully represented by Mrs. Keeley, but it was as much out of my range as Lady Macbeth would have been out of her. I endeavored in vain to idealize the cottage Cecily. I liked to deal with subtleties in my delineation, and the breadth of melodrama eluded my reach. At one climax of the play, Cecily, wandering through a deep glen, beholds the shadow of the murderer on a ruined wall. With a loud shriek, she stands, that is to say, it is her duty to stand, transfixed in an attitude of horror. I was too near-sighted to distinguish the shadow, and it could not be certain when it appeared, for I occupied the stage alone. A person was stationed behind the scenes near one of the entrances to apprise me in a whisper when the shadow came on, but not being wrought up to the requisite pitch of terror by the announcement in a gentle whisper that it was time to be frightened, the only scream I could execute was a very dubious exclamation that probably indicated nothing more distressing than a sudden pinch. The attitude of horror was an equally tame and amiable expression of alarm. The shadow scene consequently lost all its effect, though I am told that it was particularly startling when Mrs. Keeley enacted Cecily. I found, while studying the character, that it was not one in which I was likely to advance my dramatic reputation. It occurred to me to write in a few speeches which I could render telling in their delivery. As I hoped, they drew down plaudits of the audience, who were ignorant of the interpolations. I was congratulating myself at the conclusion of the play upon the dexterous, as I thought, introductions, to my surprise and confusion, I was informed that the author was in the theater and desired to be presented to me. He had witnessed the performance, had heard the trashy lines that I had passed off as his, and probably, in his heart, meditated some condign punishment for my presumption. I would have done anything reasonable or unreasonable to avoid the introduction, but there was no escape. When the offended dramatist was brought behind the scenes, 
his frigid bearing and stern rebuking countenance did not tend to re-establish my self-possession he looked as though he longed to say where did you get those fine claptrap speeches with which you thought to fit to interlard my play and i wanted to answer in a penitential tone pardon what i have spoke etc but we were neither of us standing in madame de Genlis's palace of truth and we could only guess at each other's thoughts in that faculty my transatlantic origin gave me the advantage i read such unqualified condemnations in his mind that i never afterwards ventured to utter more than down by the author in spite of my shortcomings as cecily the play was rendered sufficiently attractive by mr davenport's thrilling personation of luke to be repeated several times the critics courteously ignored my failure but that did not render the mortification less poignant to myself when the season was at its height armand was placed in rehearsal it had first been perused and canvassed by four distinguished london critics they were authors themselves and three of them dramatic authors the play was revised by one of their number or rather it was marked abundantly for my revision a speech was pointed out which bears a strong resemblance to a passage in byron's sardanopolis the imitation was an unintentional one i proposed expunging the lines entirely but was overruled by the judgments of my critics i next attempted to alter them but the amendment was not approved they finally decided that the passage would stand undefended as it was originally written the play was put upon the stage after many laborious rehearsals the scenery and stage appointments were all of the most costly character the cast was unexceptionable all the actors lent their hearty cooperation the play could only fail through its own intrinsic want of merit i pass over the days of nervous unrest of feverish anxiety during its preparation for an american and for a woman to aim at double distinction as actress and dramatist before a london tribunal was to say the least a bold experiment on the morning of the representation my flagging spirits were suddenly raised by a note from a gentleman distinguished as a divine man of letters and a member of parliament mr w j fox it accompanied the manuscript of armand which he had requested the privilege of reading the note contained these words dear mrs mollet thanks for the sight of this tis not in mortals to command success but you have assuredly deserved it yours sincerely w j fox many a time that day was this precious little document re-perused and if i read it with glistening eyes and a swelling heart was not the weakness a pardonable one armand was produced at the theatre royal marlebone january eighteenth eighteen forty nine the theatre was crammed from pit to dome the faces of well-known london literati were conspicuously scattered about the house as soon as the curtain rose this intelligence was brought to my dressing-room 
but for the note of mr fox i should probably have had another attack of stage fright and by that fatal panic ensured the failure of the play to be told from such a source that i deserve success sustained and inspired me at the close of the second act the actors who had assembled in a body around the wings to witness the representation assured me that the play was safe the audience were in such a capital humor and so attentive to rivet the attention of an audience is always a gigantic step toward success for the crow doth sing as sweetly as the lark when neither is attended with a thrill of delight i watched the green curtain fall upon the fifth act after i once began to feel my full responsibilities as an artist the nightly descent of this welcome green curtain became one of the ecstatic moments of my existence always gave me the delicious sense of trial past of duty done and brought the calm of well-earned repose at our summons before the curtain when we were told in cheers that the double victory had been achieved mr davenport led me through a perfect parterre of scattered flowers and garlands amongst them i recognized a delicate wreath of classic form made of fresh ivy leaves i knew that it had been woven by no hand save that of mary howitt's artist daughter it was her own favorite headdress in society to many another floral band and bouquet were attached the names of ever-to-be-remembered london friends reviews of the play with extracts appeared in the next morning in almost every journal in london their tenor may be inferred from the fact that twenty-two of these notices were reprinted upon the ample playbills during the run of the play the daily times gave a long and complimentary notice with extracts the notice in the examiner was written by w j fox m p and i quote on account of the high source from which it emanated marlebone theatre on thursday night a new play by mrs mowat the american actress was produced at this theatre with complete and triumphant success it is entitled armand or the peer and the peasant and the contrast intimated in the second title is wrought out very effectively by scenes and characters dis displaying the best side of rural life and the profligate manners of the court of louis fifteenth the uncongenial elements are skilfully blended by a plot which makes blanche the village may queen the unacknowledged daughter of duc de richelieu the peasant armand her successful lover notwithstanding the disparity of birth and the difficulties interposed by the passion of the monarch himself the incidents by which this is accomplished have less of novelty in themselves than in their combination and they are adapted by the author's purpose with great felicity we have to overlook some few anachronisms both social and moral for the rapid advancement of armand to rank in the army and the tone of thought and sentiment ascribed both to him and blanche properly belong to a post-revolutionary period in french history still their juxtaposition with corruptions of the monarchy is so happily rendered subservient to the poetical unity of the drama 
as to silence criticism. The result is a play of lively, intense, and continuous interest, which is more easily characterized than described. A profound philosophy of human nature, the terrific war of stormiest passion, and the magnificent burst of poetry may not be there. Indeed, where are they save in the few greatest masters of dramatic magic? But we have, instead, living and suggestive outlines of characters, scenes of pathos whose power is testified by the emotions of the audience, and a pervading simplicity, truth, and loveliness, both of thought and language, which act as a charm and are full of fascination. That it is which leaves the most distinct and abiding impression. Over the whole, though dangerous themes have sometimes to be dealt with, there is an air of purity, refinement, and tenderness. The most religious parent might take his child to such a play, and yet the common craving for theatrical excitement runs no risk of being ungratified. Mrs. Mawet is too little known to London playgoers for it to be generally understood how completely she would be identified with her own heroine. In the simplicity, sweetness, earnestness, the meek endurance, the moral energy, the devoted love, there seems no acting but the direct and spontaneous expression of individual character. There is freshness, beauty, and reality which the most elaborate art cannot rival. We hope the charm of this personation, together with the rare fact of success, both as actress and authoress, may lead to better opportunities than have yet occurred for Mrs. Mowat's winning a just appreciation of her merits from metropolitan audiences. Mr. Davenport rendered able support to the piece as Armand the artisan. He maintained a frank, manly bearing, without degenerating into insolence, and to our perceptions, without that transatlantic exaggeration which haunts the imagination of some of our critics, who might find the reality nearer home. All the actors and actresses engaged appeared to exert themselves as heartily as it proved successfully for the general effect, and Miss Villers deserves a special notice for her lively delineation of an affected page of the old regime. The play was well got up, and some of the scenery was highly creditable. The authoress, at the conclusion, was almost smothered with bouquets and wreaths, and the reception of the play every evening was announced with acclamations. Armand was enacted twenty-one nights. The title of the play in America had been Armand, or The Child of the People. This second title could not obtain a license in London, and was changed to Pierre and the Peasant. Various passages, which had been pronounced upon the stage in New York and Boston, were expunged by the English licensor on account of their anti-monarchical tendency. They were necessarily omitted in London. Some of them were afterwards restored before a Dublin audience and met with a most uproarious response. Armand was published in London immediately after its first representation. The copies nightly sold at the door of the theatre caused great annoyance to the dramatic representatives of the play. It is a singular fact that if the eye of an actor chances to rest upon an individual in the boxes who is deeply absorbed in a book, 
and if the actor fancies that book is of the play when performing he will almost invariably forget his part though he may have enacted it correctly dozens of times sometimes the mere leaf-turning of books in the hands of the audience will throw a whole company into confusion and the prompter's voice may be heard vainly attempting to plead the cause of the author as soon as i discovered this professional peculiarity i endeavored to stop the sale of armand but unsuccessfully as the english copyright had been sold an american prompter told me that one night a company to which he was attached were acting a comedy which had been hastily put on the stage the actors were tolerably perfect in their parts but it chanced that an old gentleman sat in the stage box with spectacles on nose poring over a book evidently intent upon following the play the sight of this studious individual disconcerted them so much that in the theatrical parlance several struck dead in a few first scenes the prompter after making vain efforts to unravel the entangled dialogue thought of a stratagem to rid the actors of a confusing presence he knocked at the door of the stage box and after many apologies informed the venerable gentleman within that the prompt book had been accidentally lost and it was feared that the performance could not continue unless indeed he kindly loaned the manager his book the book was instantly yielded up the treacherous memories of the company suddenly became fateful and the play proceeded and ended without further interruption armand was reproduced before the close of the season and i was offered a benefit the proceeds of which were devoted to the purchase of a silver vase in commemoration of the london success of the american production every seat was engaged long before the appointed night the largest amount that the theatre would hold when densely crowded being ascertained the vase was purchased in advance the presentation took place on the night of the benefit and greatly added to the eclat of the occasion it was a magnificent vase of silver lined with gold surmounted by a statuette of shakespeare the dedication engraved upon one side of the vase states that it is presented to anna cora mollet for her services to the drama as authoress and actress and as a record that worth and genius from every land will ever be honored in england the opposite side is inscribed with the following lines from measure for measure in her youth there is a prone and speechless dialect such as moves men besides she has a prosperous art when she would play with reason and discourse and well she can persuade the season at the Merlebone closed this year with a production of The Witch-Wife, a drama in five acts by Henry Spicer, Esquire. It was successfully represented. Mr. Davenport and myself enacted leading characters. The published play is prefaced by a complimentary dedication to the personator of the heroine. End of chapter 16